The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, with almost totally no football, we tackle big topics like Jesus and Sterling and the other transfer stories. We check on Paul Pogba's pogumentary, Cost Lots, Does Little, has some colourful highlights pretty much on brand. And hear about sharing a training pitch with Dennis Burkamp and more nuggets from history. It's all coming up in this Totally Football show in association with Paddy Power. Boom! Monday 20th of June. Hello, listener. Here with us today, Charlie Eccleshare, Adrian Clark and Colin Miller. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. Mm. Hello, everyone. Listeners, <laughs> do you know the season is over? We're still podding and indeed padding. Uh, not saying we're short on content this week, but item one is Charlie gave a talk at his old school <laughs> last week. <laughs> Charlie, is this true? Did you do that? It, it, it is true. This sounds as if I've sort of suggested this for the running order as top. I thought it should be top of the bill. I, I happened to mention this to producer Charlie, and he's mm. uh, he's done me here. Uh, I did. We cleared yes. part one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You just regale the whole thing. All right. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll have. Yeah, just set set aside half an hour, and I'll. What I'll did crack you? On. Um, was this a, a parents a parents kind of evening thing? Presenting. So your it was a careers day. Well, careers type, day, right? Type yeah. vibe. Yeah. Um, quite an intimate gig right and were you the biggest draw were you top of the bill tough for me to say you know there were architects there there were people involved in renewable energy so it depends what your vibe is I guess I guess Julian the reason I ask that is Julian Laurent not that he cares about this kind of thing but he uh, did a talk at his son's school and was mortified to discover because he thought he was going to rock it with tales of hanging with Benzema and Zidane. Uh, he was mortified to discover that Lamar, Lamar, <laughs> of when was he? Was he nineties? Same academy. No, early oh, noughties. Yeah. Early noughties. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he was he was a fellow yeah. parent, and yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't think many of the kids. Mind you, I'm not sure how many of the kids would have known Lamar or Julian Laurence for that matter. But uh, yeah, mm. nice. Yeah, I was parachuted in uh, to do one oh. um, for not my own school. Yeah, one of my friends was head of junior school at a posh private school in, in Ealing and I I got yeah got got parachuted in they'd had Olympians previously <laughs> there was quite a, quite a lot of pressure and it was what did you lead with Adrian <sighs> what did I lead oh it's a long time ago but it, it oh. was daunting the whole of the junior school parents teachers head teachers they took me for a lunch beforehand it was quite a big build-up to it and it yeah I felt under pressure but no it was just a my backstory plus really the, the the theme was always have a backup work hard at school because plan a might not mm. always turn out the way the way you want it to or and, you could uh, end up podcasting that's yeah, a, exactly. I mean, it's a <laughs> tough place to go Ealing as well did you get heckled yeah. much yeah. I, no, I tell you what afterwards it was it was a joy because I, I was signing autographs I hadn't signed <laughs> autographs in donkey's years I, fe- I felt fantastic about myself but it was yeah I was really nervous it was it was scary yeah. all right uh, that was uh, giving a talk at schools we'll be uh, discussing England under 19s later so look out for that uh, but next up Let's go with some transfers. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. That's right. It's that time of year when transfers are dominating every right-thinking supporter's thinking. 
especially when they are as tasty as Raheem Sterling to Chelsea. Charlie, this is, seems to be a big thing and happening, yes? Yeah, um, Chelsea pretty confident. I, I'm really curious to, to know, to see how this ends up, given Sterling... Uh, has been so effective in that Guardiola system, and you know he's he's perfect at getting on the end of things. Um, h- how much that will work when you move him across? I mean, I guess he's been effective for England, and Tuchel is a pretty systems-based coach. Um, but he's not. We're, you know, I, I think Sterling is really good and really effective. But some signings you look at and you think, ah, oh, I wish my club were doing that. I I, I don't feel that quite so much with Sterling. Um, but. You know, we'll, we'll see. He ha- he has been very, very good for, for a long period of time. All right. And Chelsea certainly need goals uh, from people up front, mm. uh, with especially with Luke. I mean, I say especially, uh, not sure how relevant it is, but Lukaku uh, does look like heading back to Inter. W- what do you think, Colin and Adrian? Um, actually, in terms of the Lukaku um, situation, and obviously that's been a that's been a kind of ongoing case really really since that interview he gave around, around Christmas time but his his struggles at Chelsea really predated that and at the start of the season everybody was everybody was full of praise for Chelsea going out and getting this big striker that that, that had sort of been missing the missing piece of the puzzle I think we said and it was actually Daniel Story who who prophesied uh, Lukaku's struggles a year ago he he wrote a piece saying that uh, whenever Thomas Tuchel had, had signed Lukaku and he sort of compared Lukaku to Olivier Giroud and saying, you know, we need a player who'll who'll play with with their back to goal and whose strength is to to keep possession from long balls. And and really, that was that was almost the opposite of of Lukaku's sort of mm. successes at Inter, where he was like this this huge counter attacking threat. He dropped deep, he moved out wide, and then he sort of led the attacks from deep. So that sort of style of play kind of clashed a little bit with Chelsea. Whereas you sort of look at Raheem Sterling and think. That's probably a player who who fits in a lot more with that that sort of quick attacks, this sort of interlinking interlinking play, which which sort of suits like Kai Havertz, Mason Mount, Timo Werner, even and Christian Pulisic. They're they're all they're all that similar similar style of attacker. I think Sterling would be stylistically quite quite a good fit in that system. I agree. I, th- I think that Chelsea, when you they've evolved a little bit under Thomas Tuchel when he first took charge, they were very much a, a ball hoggers, weren't they? <laughs> they just knocked the ball around. For ages um, and wore teams down, they became more of a counter-attacking side last season for sure, um, and that would definitely suit Sterling. I think he's he's still a little bit underrated. I was, you know, double-figure goals in each of the last five Premier League seasons, and when you consider that he rarely starts every game, he's certainly in and out of the side. That's impressive. Across those five seasons, seventeen is the fewest number of direct goal involvements, that goal or, or assist. So he's he's a guy with end product, no doubt about it. And from his point of view, I kind of get why he would look for pastures new because he's, yeah, he wants to be a main man. And Phil Foden got, got more minutes than him in the Premier League last season, which I think just shows the way that he's not being phased out, but he's certainly not one of the, uh, you know, must picks for Pep Guardiola. Mm. Interesting from City that Gabriel Jesus looks to be on the move as well, mm. agent to mm. Arsenal. Mm. A move that was actually suggested by Adam Hurry, unprompted, back on the 9th of April. You mentioned Daniel Story's piece a year ago, but that's similarly prescient. How, how do you feel about Gabriel Jesus? A, how uh, likely is it to go through? And B, how well does that work? 
I don't know how likely the mood music is pretty positive, isn't it? That that they've they've laid the groundwork and that he's keen. Uh, obviously, Mikel Arteta knows him. There's a big Brazilian connection at Arsenal, so it, there's a lot of you know pieces that sort of fit this jigsaw. He's a brilliant pressing centre forward, and clearly that's where Arsenal want to be. They just didn't. They haven't had the right personnel. They haven't had somebody that that can press from the front brilliantly and score lots of goals and I think that that that's the idea behind behind this signing so you know I'm excited about it I think it's a it's a big upgrade on on Lacazette who he was a good player that that just stopped scoring goals he just wasn't mobile enough and um yeah kept coming short and and Gabriel Jesus will offer yeah a bit more quality certainly more mobility and I think we saw at the end of last season how how lethal he can be, Gabriel Jesus. The only cloud, I would suggest, is his goal record in the past. It's never blown your socks off. It's I think 14 is the most he's scored in a Premier League season. Um, and his minutes per goal sort of ratio is nothing special. So um, that's the one caveat. But I think he's more than just a goal scorer, Gabriel Jesus. He'll fit. He can also play on the right wing, the left wing, as well as up front. So yeah, I, I, I'm... Pretty excited about it if it happens. That, that actually, that actually, Adrian, is something that I was I was going to say. The fact the fact that Gabriel Jesus is clearly a, a very talented forward, and to be in a, to be in a team like Man City who score that many goals and only hit double figures in the Premier League twice in what five five seasons. I mean, it's not it's it's obviously not a, not a great record. I, I think he's more of a more of an industrious player rather than a rather than a ruthless one. I, I kind of think if if you're looking at this from an Arsenal point of view, would you not rather have a player who who sort of sticks to that central role and is proven in that role. Whereas I saw I saw Jesus being linked to to Real Madrid this summer as well. I don't I don't know how advanced that that ever was going to be, but it seems it seems to me that that he's much more comfortable being being that sort of player. Whereas he's in the, a supporting role rather than the rather than the main man. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, he's, we've not seen him as the main man, have we? So hopefully we'll we'll see. But what what I would say is that if it's only Gabriel Jesus, it's not enough. Definitely not enough from Arsenal's point of view because there's only him and Eddie Nketiah potentially as mm. strikers. This is Arsenal. This is a team that that needs that are in Europe this season that want top four. You have to have three proper centre forwards. You ne- Arsenal desperately need a tall striker that just offers a bit of variety that will convert crosses. Mm. Um, so Gabriel Jesus on his own is not going to be enough for Arsenal. This is Arsenal Football Club, Adrian, to give it the full... Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eddie Nketiah, who has now has now signed a new contract. Uh, so that has been confirmed after that brilliant end to the season, five goals in the last seven Premier League games. And also midfielder Fabio Vieira from Porto for a €40 million, Euros, Charlie Crikey. Yeah, I mean, I think... Well, there are a few, uh, there's a lot there to unpack. I mean, Jesus as well, someone who Spurs um, have looked at and there's been some talk that they might... Um, hijack that deal which would obviously be quite sensational I mean I think Arsenal feel pretty confident about getting that done and he is someone they've been tracking for a long long time and the Arteta connection but I think Adrian the the plan you know with with someone like Vieira coming in they're more targeting then on top of that someone like Rafinha to go along with Jesus so you've basically got this sort of rotating cast of wide forwards who can also play centrally, sort of like what Man City do. And I guess that's slightly the the dilemma is, do you absolutely try and nail plan A? I mean, that's what City have done. You know, you don't, we we never, City didn't even have a centre forward last season, let alone a 
big um, target man, and that's worked for them. Obviously, we're talking about much higher calibre of players, but I think it looks like, l- looking at Arsenal's targets, that they're more hoping to do something, you know, a kind of city light where you have a lot of wide forwards who can all rotate within one another. And then, you know, Jesus and, and Ketia are the more central striker options. But I'd, I'd be surprised if, given how much they're already spending, if they also had enough to bring in, you know, previously Calvert-Lewin, someone they looked at, I think someone like him would be way out of their, their price br- bracket now. I just, yeah. I, I mean, Giroud the, would be ideal, wouldn't it? Yeah. Giroud I, five years ago. Or the reason Arsenal fell short, or one of the reasons they fell short last season was a lack of goals. And it was, a, it was a heavy reliance on attacking midfielders to to deliver the goals they needed for top four. They did brilliantly. It's hard to criticise any of those younger players, but ultimately it wasn't enough. They need goal scorers. And I, yeah, and, and I just feel for variety. I get I get it. And there is a very clear plan A that, that, that we, Arsenal may go with this sort of rotating centre forward, maybe a false nine and whatnot. But... I think you have to have something else. I really do. Um, especially if you've got these creators who are putting excellent balls into the area. Hmm. Why not have a big, strong centre forward that can get on the end of them, even if it's your number two? Just an option. And and I, I think it's I think it's far more important for Arsenal to sign that type of player than bring in Rafinha, who I love as a footballer, and I think it'd be great. There's a missing piece there, and it, and in my opinion, it needs to be needs to be filled. You mentioned Man City and of course they've just won the league without the big tall centre forward. So It's a different level though, isn't it? Arsenal's Arsenal's young players are growing and they're learning and they're developing. City have got they've, they've been doing it for years, those guys at the top end mm. of the pitch. Vieira, meanwhile, player of the tournament at the under twenty one Euros last year with uh, Portugal runners-up. And last season in the Liga Nash, he scored or assisted, well, he was directly involved in 20 goals in 27 games, so, hmm. His his output is really impressive. It's it's actually more impressive by the fact that he's only ever started 20 league matches in his senior career for Porto. So, I mean, he's 22, he's not not that young, but he doesn't doesn't really have a lot of first-team experience, relatively. I mean, I I would imagine that Porto were, were... Delighted to get that transfer fee for him. I know what I know what Arsenal are trying trying to do with him, and it's a very similar profile, isn't it, to the to the Martin Odegaard and the Emil Smith Rowe type type players who can who can sort of have that goal threat coming from midfield. And the the other thing about Inketia as well is just saying there about how his his again Arsenal struggle for goals. He only scored five Premier League goals last season and, and I know that Arsenal the, the, the contract renewal was inevitable because Lacazette had gone there's no other strikers left but this is a guy who obviously who obviously can, can contribute in an attacking sense but again you're thinking you need a guy who can deliver 15 or 20 Premier League goals Co- a season Colin, is that, is that, is his that first start Colin his first start was on the 16th of April yeah, but but how many but how many times did he come off the bench later on? How many times did he did he change games? And, 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 and listen, I know I know we can we can sort of debate whether he's he he's going to develop and, and and continue to score goals. But if you're Arsenal, if you're an Arsenal fan and you think Eddie and Ketia is is enough for for our for, for the level that we need to be starting week in week out, because you look at you look at other teams at that level and they've all got three or four options in that position who can deliver fifteen or twenty goals a season. Yeah. Those five to... goals still made him Arsenal's top scoring Premier League striker last season. <laughs> all right, Charlie, which, all right. All which right. kind of says it all. <laughs> no, Ed, Ed, I'm pleased for Eddie. He was fantastic at the end of last season, but I, hand on heart, I think he should be 
the number two or number three. They should be part of a of a three pronged centre forward armory. Yeah, I don't expect him to to start that regularly this season. But but we'll have to wait and see. I'm you know I'm chuffed for him, but for Arsenal to progress, they need two other centre forwards to come into the building. Definitely. All right. Well, a short distance across North London, Spurs have been busy. We'll talk about what they've been up to and whether that's been enough next. Place your bets. Welcome to Pep Roulette. Charlotte, feeling confident today, me. And your selection? Just start up front. Blue number nine and 26. Uh, 17 as well, just behind the front two. Like. Excellent. Good luck. Blue number seven. Unlucky, sir. Oh, Sterling, he started last week. Predicting Pep's lineups is hard, but fortunately, we've made our bet builder easy. Simply choose a top pre-built bet builder, click add to bet slip, select your stake, and done. Paddy power. Online exclusive. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Be This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Ipasuma, Charlie. Has that gone through mm. to Spurs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that was confirmed on Friday. To what extent is the fact that he was scored that worldie against them in the FA Cup and I think played well on another visit, does that still have a massive impact on when clubs sign a player because he, he does well against them? I mean, you'd, you'd hope not disproportionately, but it certainly has an impression on the fan base because mm. also two of both of those games were at Spurs. And honestly, on both occasions, he was unbelievably good. I mean, he's one of these players who every time I see him, I think is unbelievably good. But I, because I invariably only watch Brighton when they play kind of in the biggest matches, I, I did ask my colleague at the time, actually, Andy Naylor, who covers Brighton during that one in April where Brighton won one nil. I was like, is he is he always this good or is it just does he turn it on for the biggest games? And he said, actually, he has become a lot more consistent. And that was one of the things Ryan Potter was kind of demanding of him. I think he's a brilliant player. You know, he always looked like one of those who one of the best players outside of you know the top six and yeah, lots of clubs have been interested in him and because of the contractual situation only a year left 25 million feels like a real snip in, in today's market all right there is a, a a legal situation with him which is a fairly major asterisk on that move arrested mm-hmm. under suspicion of sexual assault released then under investigation that dates back to last december uh, in football terms a versatile midfielder charlie which particular role do you see him uh, answering for Antonio Conte. Well, Conte's wanted since he came that kind of register, someone who can drop deep, pick the ball up, start attacks. Um, he's very good at dropping into deep positions. And, you know, he, he played a lot of the time for Brighton as basically their sole defensive midfielder, you know, and was covering a huge amount of ground. He's, he's one of these players, very press resistant. He's brave. I mean, someone who will get the ball, fans kind of gasp because... He's doing it under pressure from an opposition centre forward, but can glide away from them and yeah, get get the midfield going. And I think 
Bentancourt did a bit of that last season, but it was it was you know that was what he got criticised for when he was at Juve for not being Pirlo levels. Um, so he gets to move forward a little bit. Basuma does that role. You know that should make a big difference, and it just gives them more bodies there. You know that they sometimes struggled. They can play. It means they can play three five two as well as three four three. I think I think it's a really really good signing for them. One thing that might surprise you, Charlie is how, how often he'll win the ball higher at the pitch as well. I mm, think what, mm. one thing that really stood out for me when I watched Brighton was they had the sort of front three or four players that were going press because they're a great pressing side, Brighton. And what Basuma would do would make this sort of sprint from deep to, to at the last minute to go and join in as a sort of front five pressing. And he was really good at it, really good at, at sort of pinching the ball in you know midway through the opposition half. So I think... He's got great energy. He, he does feel mm. like a player that's that's made for a Conte super fit side. And yeah, look, I, I think it's a, on, from a footballing perspective, I think it's a very good signing. How good do you think Spurs are going to be next season with Bissouma, with the other business that they've done and potentially will do? Saf Favley saying, could this be Spurs' best season since Poch? Yes, I, I I definitely think that. I mean, th- there's you know l- last season was their best season um, since Poch. I mean, the signings mm. they're making, um, you know, even la- for, if you look at the time from when Conte took over, they were third. Only City and Liverpool got more points, and I, I see no reason why they can't finish third this season. You know, some people are talking about could they aim higher than that? I think you know Liverpool and City are just so extraordinarily good and one of them might have a blip. You know, I think that's possible. We've seen that previously. Liverpool had one a um, couple of seasons ago. For, for, for Spurs to be, you know, really pushing for the title, both would have to uh, fall off. And and also that the points tallies those two teams get are just so ridiculous that even if Spurs moved up to kind of mid-80s, which would be amazing, you're still probably going to be trailing one or both of them. But I, but I think they, they should definitely, they definitely, to me, look like the third best team in the Premier League. Um, should say as well on Basuma, I've done a piece on kind of what he'll bring. So if people want kind of more on that, it's on The Athletic. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the moves they're making, it looks like being a really effective window off the back of a really strong finish to the season. The thing with Spurs is that, you know, it's the Antonio Conte factor, isn't it? And not not just in terms of the, the second half of last season and the, getting in Kulusevsky, getting in Bentancur, but this summer as well, that there's been a real, it seems that the Tottenham's board are making a real effort to, to appease Conte and, and his demands. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because James, as you'll know particularly well, obviously Conte with, with Inter, that the they, the they backed him incredibly well. And even, even when they were on their way to the league title, he was still... He was still complaining about the players that he didn't have, and he was still complaining about the the lack of investment, even though he was he was seemingly getting more players than any other club at that time. So, it's going to be interesting to see whenever whenever Tottenham do go through a blip next year, what what's Conte what's Conte going to say, and what's he going to say about the players that he has? Because I don't think he can really, in a realistic sense, complain about what the club have done. Basuma is obviously a great sign. Perisic sort of fits that uh, wing back system very well. But are Tottenham going to be able to evolve from being a particularly effective counter-attacking team to one that can control games a little bit more? Is that something that Conte even really wants to do? Is that is that in his vision? Is that and is that is that a style that that will work in the Premier League to get eighty plus points? It, it'll be interesting how it pans out. I think I think it's a very exciting project, but there's always that sense of Conte, isn't it? That it can be a little bit volatile. Yeah, they're shaping up well. I think Spurs, no doubt about that. But but. 
that, that it still exists. This, this, you know, this issue around Kane and Son. It, it is the Kane and Son show. You know, without their unbelievable end product, mm. then then what is there? So, so sure, surely there are some plans afoot to 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 at least consider the future and or or, or a plan B. I'd be interested to know if Charlie's got any inside info on that. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they've obviously they have Kudelski already, which I think did make an enormous difference because that that reliance on Kane and Son was an issue. They didn't really have that third regular goal scorer apart from own goal, um, but Kulusevski came in, made a massive difference, and they are looking to bring in a high quality fourth attacker, you know, someone like Richarlison, Rafinha, as well as on their list. And I I do think that would to me be quite a major moment. You know, we we, we tend to think of Spurs. And Arsenal, I suppose, you know, they're not teams who typically will go out and massively strengthen areas of strength, you know, whereas, you know, we think of Chelsea, City going out and do that. I think for Spurs to go out and spend big on someone like Richarlison when they already have Kane, Son and Kudusevsky, that would be a a real um, sort of shift in policy, I think. You know, a real statement of we've already got this brilliant front three, but we're not satisfied with that. We want a bit more competition. So I think I think they are trying to reduce the reliance just on those two. Elsewhere, potential for a Liverpool blip, perhaps heightened by the fact that Sadio Mane's move to Bayern Munich is expected to be confirmed early this week. Given that, as Duncan Alexander frequently pointed out, he scored seventy five percent of his Premier League goals within two miles of the English coast. Not sure how it's going to work out for him in <laughs> Munich, but there you go. Uh, his arrival there, I guess, brings us on to the ongoing Lewandowski situation. Here's a question from Sasu Haino, who says, Can Colin explain more about the financial restructuring, stay with us listeners, of Barcelona and what that, that's all about? Because I guess the, the Lewandowski move is contingent on this. And, and where are we at also with Frankie de Jong to Manchester United? Yeah, okay. So the Barcelona debt restructuring, it's incredibly convoluted. It's very it's very difficult to, to explain, especially when you're not from a, an economic background. I'll try to I'll try to keep this as simplified as possible. So Barcelona obviously as we all know are in are in a huge amount of debt. A lot of that was short term debt. So Joan Laporta, the president and his board have tried to restructure that debt, primarily in two ways. First of all, by by taking out new loan deals, by sort of kicking the can down the road, so to speak. Um, another part of that is by is by essentially selling off parts of the club's cash revenues for fixed lump sums. So this this is something that was approved by by the members last week to allow them to sell off twenty five percent of their TV rights and forty nine percent of the Barca licensing and merchandising range. So that could rake in somewhere between six hundred, seven hundred, eight million. 800 million euros in the long term but essentially what they need to do is they need to sell those for their accounts this year which has the deadline of the 30th of june so that's why barcelona are so keen to get these things done because they need to satisfy their accounts they need to take that off and that ties in with the frankie de jong situation because if they were to sell frankie de jong without getting that deal through that would that would satisfy the accounts but if they were to get the the selling off of their rights through anyway their urgency isn't quite as great. But even with that, they still have to get their wage bill down. They need to, to get within their budget. So I think that the young departure is inevitable in in a sense that United seem to be very keen to push for that. Eric Ten Hag's obviously driving that deal. 
And we had that leaked video footage of uh, Richard Arnold, the Man United CEO, uh, this weekend saying that <laughs> they were essentially willing to break the bank to sign De Jong, which might not like, go down too well in the negotiation process for Barcelona. <laughs> but I, but I do, I do, I do have a sense that, that that deal will happen eventually. It's just a case of how long it'll take. The Robert Lewandowski one is a bit more complicated because Bayern Munich will need to agree to sell him, but he seems to be pushing for that particularly hard. I don't I don't know if we've seen the reports, but there was apparently uh, there's reports from Germany saying that Julian Nagelsmann had a had a bit of a of a falling out with Lewandowski over telling him how to how to restructure his game to, to fit in with their attacks. So Lewandowski seems to be particularly keen to move to Barcelona. So it's gonna be hard to see how they, how they can how they can finance that. But again there they are doing a lot of short term deals and essentially whilst that is seen as a risky strategy they would argue that well, what this does is it allows us to grow on our own terms. It allows us to build a team that can continue to challenge for trophies and that we can continue to grow the, the Barcelona brand. Whether or not it pays off, we won't know for, for years, very, very probably, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out because it could go, it could go either way for them. And I, my personal point of view is that I've seen Barcelona invest so much money in these big name signings in the past ten years, and that's that's essentially how it all went wrong. So I'm not sure that signing, uh, what a 34 year old Robert Lewandowski just months after signing Aubameyang on on a free transfer from Arsenal, but on big wages, I don't know how how that all ties in together. But it seems to be they're particularly particularly keen to do it. Mm. Is your is your sense that come the new season he will be lining up there? At the uh, camp, no. I mean, it, it seems it seems that way. His, his comments on Bayern Munich are particularly strong. He's just like, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that my story here is is finished. He is out of contract in a year, and obviously with Bayern Munich signing Sadio Mane, I mean that's, I mean that that's obviously a huge addition to their attack. And again, when we think about Julian Nagelsmann, you know, very innovative ways of coaching and innovative ways of attacking. I mean, maybe I think I think Bayern Munich thought that they were getting a little bit too predictable with Lewandowski. I mean, obviously he scores a remarkable amount of goals, but 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 teams sort of are starting to know how to defend against that at the top level in the Champions League. And I, mean, I think we saw that with Villarreal this season, and it eliminated Bayern. So maybe they're going to try to reinvent themselves, and you, you probably can't do it with anybody better than Sadio Mane, who's who's for my money one of the top ten players in the world. He's 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 just as important to Liverpool as Mohamed Salah and Virgil Van Dijk have been, and he's just a. I know I know he's just turned thirty, but I think he's got a few few more years left at the top level. I I think that, that's a remarkable signing for Bayern, mm, especially at that price. But just just as well, Liverpool were saying that you know we do have him out of contract in a year, and we have Salah out of contract in a year. So to get thirty million, I, I mean I think it's just a gesture of goodwill to Mane, isn't it? I mean he's 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 been a remarkable player for six years, and he's he's never kicked up this the slightest bit of fuss. So. On the subject, by the way, of big-name signings from the Bundesliga, TK says, why do you think many of the recent ones haven't lived up to expectations just yet? TK cites Sancho, Havertz, and yes, Timo Werner. Any chance, asks TK, that Haaland disappoints at City? Erling Haaland, whose, whose goals in the Bundesliga last season, I think, were less than Timo Werner got in his final season in Germany's top division, worryingly... I mean, his Champions League record would yeah, um, there is that. Su- su- suggest he's not a kind of flat track bully, uh, you know. Uh, so I, I'm not too fearful for uh, for Erling Haaland's City chances. Though the the point is interesting about that the the trend of um, yeah, 
players, some players anyway, struggling from the Bundesliga. Yeah, mm. I, I, I think there's a very, very small chance of Erling Haaland failing at Manchester City. He's the real deal. He's, he's got it all. And I think he's tailor-made to, to score you know, stacks of goals in, in the Premier League. Look, Sancho joined the United team in a mess, didn't he? Kai Havertz, mm. there's always been an issue around his where to use him and I think everyone's still working that out and Timo Werner he's had some good moments as he's well. had some good moments yeah and I think he's a class player I really do who could easily come good and in a way Timo, you could say the same about Timo Werner it's just been it's choked over so many easy chances it, it's it's amazing really I think the rest of his game has, has been pretty good I think he's looked one of the most dangerous players in the Premier League ever since he arrived but it's it's the finishing that's that's let him down. And that that wasn't a problem before, was it? So um, yeah, I don't think it's a Bundesliga thing. I would just add quickly that Bundesliga teams do tend to play a little bit more open defensively, and it gives it gives attackers a little bit more space. And I think that's maybe something that, that the likes of Sancho and Timo Werner would particularly adapt that. Whereas in the Premier League, you just need I think you just need to adapt your game a little bit, don't you? And you just have to to play a little bit differently. I think it's just the style of the Bundesliga feeds into that narrative a bit. Mm. Fingers crossed then for Erling. Uh, also on the transfer front, probably the last bit of transfer stuff for now. Paul Pogba, free agent these days at Man United, or no longer at Man United, uh, appears to be on his way back once again to Juventus. The road well travelled from his point of view. Uh, and in the meantime, excitingly, he's got a, a documentary, sorry, a pogumentary, pogmentary, that is now dropped on on Amazon, made by Amazon, and amazing that it got made, if you'll excuse me there. Uh, I, how far did you get? I, um, for our homework this week, listener, we all had a go, I think it's fair to say. I made it 15 minutes in. Uh, who, who got the furthest? I watched two episodes. Which I think, Adrian, you, you, you had a PB, didn't uh, you? I, I, do you know what? I, I went through all five, but there are... <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying this for comedy effect. I did nod off for for certain <laughs> spells of certain episodes because I watched it quite late at night when I was sort yeah. of you know just just winding down. So, yeah. so I've, I've seen most of it. Um, yeah. And why did I, it get made? Do you think? What was why? the What was the brief? I don't know. Well, I, I think, think wasn't it Pogba trying to show himself? Brown kind Pogba. Of show, yeah. Exactly. Mm, yeah. So the yeah. 15 minutes I saw featured. A little bit of him talking to his lawyer, mm. a couple of somewhat poignant bits of Mina Raiola, but mostly him sitting in his front room playing with his kids and being a normal guy with his wife. It's not, there's no kind of opening monologue in which he does a savage takedown of Graham Sunes or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just curious why Amazon thought, yeah, player wants to reposition himself, perhaps that's going to make some red hot content across five episodes. They probably don't. They probably feel it doesn't need to be red hot because it's Paul Pogba and and, and people mm. will watch it because they they think people are interested in him. And look, the modern breed of fans, the kids today, mm. they they are fans of players, aren't they? As much as as they are of teams. And if you're into Paul Pogba, if you really like him, then it's probably a, gr- a great watch. You know, you I doubt. It. I mean, it, sorry, I've only w- watched the first fifteen <laughs> minutes, but I did go into it thinking I will enjoy this because I like Paul Pogba and I'm intrigued by him and the enigma that he represents but I, I struggled Colin you've gone very quiet did you watch it 
yeah, I, I, I watched the I watched the first episode and, and I'm sort of struggling in my mind to think how they span this into into a series. But what I, what I would say is that I think this is this is sort of like the influence of of American sports and particularly particularly the NBA stars. Where you had Antoine Griezmann a couple of years ago with his remember that mm. program, the decision about whether mm. he would he would stay at Atletico Madrid or join Barcelona, and that 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 was based on on what NBA players had done and had done successfully to that audience. And that's not something that, that had ever really been done before in football, but we can sort I think we can sort of see that a little bit with this Pogba documentary where it's by you know, the whole thing at the start was oh, you know, I'm sort of I'm out of contract in one year at Man United and should I should I stay, should I go? And it was sort of like building up that, that sort of personal angle of it. Mm. But again, this is something that probably won't go down particularly well if it goes down at all with, with, with a lot of fans. Certainly certainly Man United. I, I think I, th- I think I think a lot of people a lot of people just don't really care too much about Paul Pogba anymore, which I think I think it's a little bit a little bit sad, but but it's, it's understandable just the way his his career's gone there. Oh, yeah, also, it's not it's not like we're exactly sure of should Paul Pogba stay at Man United or go content in you know in recent years. Not like it's a fresh and radical topic to be. <laughs> and he didn't really go into into his thoughts and feelings on it enough, in my opinion. We saw his agents discuss it his options that was the running thread around him being you know a nice family man mm. it was it was really a, a branding thing i think you know it's brand pogba and it, it was trying to just give you an insight into what it's like to be a sort of superstar player that is unsure where his future lies for him and his family mm. it, it just felt obviously a bit me 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 it kind of showed the individual mentality that he has very little chat about Manchester United, very little footage of any buddies from Manchester United. I think that was one of the saddest things to emerge from it, in my opinion, was the only real teammate that you saw was Victor Lindelof turning up at family events and stuff with his kids. Uh, Varane was another, actually. But outside of that, it was all his France teammates that you got to sort of see him hanging out with. Um, yeah, you didn't get the impression that... that you didn't get anything about Manchester United as a team, that sort of spirit within the group at all across the whole piece, um, which was maybe deliberate. I don't know. If if listeners weren't excited by our, our words on the pog, Pogmentary and, and wanted to watch another football-related behind-the-scenes fly-on-the-wall style series, which ones should they absolutely head to first? I would actually say there's a very good one um, that was done by Amazon on La Liga um, called Six Dreams, which followed six different um, personalities in La Liga throughout the, I think it was the 2017-18 season. There was three mm-hmm. players. There was the Sevilla manager, Alberto Barizzo. There was a, the Girona sporting director and the president of Abar. So it was it was actually quite good the way it was done because it was it was from a player perspective, a coaching perspective and everything else. And I think, I think those documentaries work a little bit better when they do have those those personal stories rather than the rather than those all or nothing series which focus on the obviously on on the clubs and listen we 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 know what we're watching is very PR orientated it's very carefully crafted to be to give off an image of the club which is generally generally quite beneficial but I, I think whenever it personalizes it a little bit more it's, it's it's more interesting just to get just to, as you said to get that fly on the wall access and to see what mm. life might not be re- not really like for the players but certainly certainly a more realistic representation I think Interesting. Six dreams. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The the key thing is that your is how little control the clubs have. The more control they have, obviously, the worse it's going to be. The more 
polish. So so one of the ones that was really good was Sunderland Till I Die because they didn't have quite so much as I understand. So that was that felt a lot more kind of real somehow because it was it was allowed there were allowed to be moments where the club didn't come across well and and you know realistically we want, we want that balance we don't want the kind of you know isn't aren't we wonderful i mean not a series but the maradona film from a few years ago is is absolutely brilliant um i would i would definitely recommend watching that mm. yeah. all right adrian same, same ones, really. Yeah, Maradona I loved. Um, Sunderland Till I Die, the same. Um, I was in the Ronaldo one, so I'm duty-bound to... Um, to the Cristiano Ronaldo one? Yeah, yeah I did, did a bit of voiceover work for that, but I sort of got a connection with one of the producers, this good friend of mine that, that worked on the Ronaldo movie and the Maradona one, actually. And mm. I can tell you that mm. I, I actually helped to set them up with Maradona, mm. uh, which just sounds bizarre, but it's kind of true. I sort of had a few contacts that... That, that I set up a few meetings in the early stages that set the wheels in motion. And it took years, like five, six, seven years to really nail him down, to get those conversations with him. That was so important, obviously, to, to also get that amazing back catalogue of, of footage. So much work and time went into it. And and I'm, I'm I was chuffed to bits actually with the end product. I thought I thought it was it was really really good. With these modern ones where you're looking at the the current team, current players, you know it's sanitised. But I still think you can enjoy it. Um, mm. I do because you get to see things on the inside that you don't mm. ordinarily see, and I think that is enjoyable. But there's always a caveat with these that what you're watching isn't you know isn't the full picture. But I, yeah. I can live with that. I, I absolutely, I can't wait for the Arsenal one. Can't wait right. for it, even though it might not paint the club completely in the right picture or the, or a nice picture. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I'm just fascinated to see it, and obviously I spend a lot of time there. But I, there there are certain elements that I don't get to see that I I'm really fascinated about. So yeah, it's it's great. I, I think the key thing though, what frustrated me with the Spurs one, and obviously I was way way too close to it, was that as long as people kind of understand the terms of engagement and the deal I think a lot the the thing I found slightly frustrating would be people take it as if it is the whole picture which it so clearly isn't and so would say things to me like oh no but didn't you see it in the documentary Mourinho said he really likes that player it's like (laughs) yes that may be true Uh, and he may have said that it may be there was slightly more going on than what they shown and and but but absolutely there'll there'll be little bits in it that are really interesting because team talks you know, were great the, the yeah, Spurs exactly. team talk bits mm. were brilliant when you save the penalty they try to put huge pressure for another penalty to be to be given this is the difference between a team of and a team of good guys but the story of football is that the teams of good guys they never win. I think a lot of people were saying, God, wow, it's amazing. In, in team talks, they don't say anything of interest. It's all just like <laughs> up and atom type stuff. And it's like, well, they probably do, but they maybe they don't want us to see the kind of intricate, uh, more secretive elements of that. And, uh, but, but that's fine. And I know people who watched the Spurs watch. documentary. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. I, I know people who watched um, the Spurs documentary who aren't football fans and and that's great i think um you know there are definitely bits to enjoy but as long as you you kind of understand that it, it's a documentary in the kind of the loosest possible sense i think a lot of the most interesting stuff away from the microphones very much like like podcasting in fact adrian you were <laughs> touching on your incredible network of contacts among the football 
the football greats that, that your very career has afforded you, something that the school children of Ealing, of course, know all too well. We'll be touching another on another of the legends of the game that you call friend next. On the latest episode of Football Clichés, the podcast about all the things you didn't realise you cared about, we were delighted to have, sharing his footballing fascinations and irritations, former Match of the Day pundit and commentator Mark Lawrenson. Not that we were planning to use his full name at any point. Hugely important formality to begin with. May we call you Lauro? Yes. Like, I feel like mm. I physically can't call you Mark. No, no one calls me Mark. No, even better half doesn't call me Mark, so no, just call me Lauro. Really? Yeah. Your wife calls you Loro? Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, just just listen, just on that, I was at the railway station in Runcorn the other week, yeah. and Rushy was there with his with his missus going to London, and his missus calls him Rushy. <laughs> which, I, which I felt really funny, and then I, I suddenly thought about it and thought, well, hold on, you're better off calls you Loro, so hey, hey-ho. Among Loro's selections for his Mesut Harland dicks were the unashamed joy of watching a touchline managerial bust-up, Referees making players walk over to them to get booked. And, of course, players squealing when they get tackled. Meanwhile, he discussed the cultural reach of his now-retired BBC Predictions column, his curious commentary lines on Pro Evolution Soccer 2010, and that alleged on-air falling out with Guy Mowbray during a live World Cup game. Listen to the full episode with Loro wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of the bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. The 94th minute. Hello to you. Tweets uh, 20th of June today. That's the anniversary of Alan Shearer making his debut for England. So, what is the pod's favourite Shearer goal of all time? Woof. England Holland is the one I think. That's one I was going to go with as well. Yeah. yeah, when he slash, slashes it into the top corner. That that was peak Shearer, wasn't it? Gascoigne, showing him again, and Shearer. With Shearer, there's a part of me that I'm still a little bit annoyed at him for for retiring from England so early. Mm. Yeah, it's it's obviously a very selfish move and it was what was right for him and his career, but it it did kind of shortchange England a little bit. So, yeah, there's a sort of asterisk asterisk against Shearer's name (laughs) in this house, but that doesn't really count for much, does it? Wow. Yeah, that I would go that Holland goal as well. Just that that's for what it represented and just the confidence to hit that first time and in that kind of way, just smash it. Uh it's it's quite unique. You rarely see that finish. Um and it, I think that's one of the best goals I can remember seeing as an England fan and you know it really did make you believe at that moment that <laughs> we were going to go on and win the Euros. Mm. As it turned out though. Uh, anyway, 20th of June today as we record this, and it's quite a big day for international goals, as it turns out. It's the 20th of June, 1976, that Antonin Panenka stepped up to the spot and thought, how about if I just... (laughs) And, uh, yeah, as Czechoslovakia beat West Germany 5-3 on penalties, and he invented the Panenka, 
I think then and there, no, is that the story that he'd never, he hadn't tried it previously before? Nope. Certainly in a professional game, yeah. Yeah, in the European Championship final. Extraordinary. When are we going to see, James, when are we going to see a Rabona pen? That's what I'm waiting for next. Ooh, have we not seen that? That must have been done, hasn't it? Somewhere in... I can't remember a top-level Rabona pen. No, but... And and I've practiced There was the standing leg pen. Do you remember that one? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Where you swing at it and the goalkeeper dives at the Uh, leg, which hasn't connected, but the standing leg then taps it straight ahead. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it's brilliant. I can't... I mean, that should bear the surname of whoever first came up with that. But uh, Joe Cole... On this day in 2006, Joko, why not? Joko, why not? Swinging shot, brilliant! Oh. Why not? One of the best England goals ever, I think, with all due respect to Alan Shearer. Mm. And he very rarely scored long range goals, did he, as well? So um, mm. it was sort of an unusual effort from Cole. Absolutely brilliant. It was. Uh, also on this day, in 1995, not an international goal, but a pretty significant moment in football history because Dennis Bergkamp signed for Arsenal. Adrian has described playing alongside Bergkamp as the highlight of his career. That's Adrian's career, not Dennis Bergkamp's, just to be <laughs> absolutely clear. Why Adrian? Oh, he's just so good. He's just, just an awesome, awesome player. By f- some distance, the best player at Arsenal. It was um, it was it was a really significant signing, wasn't it? Because if you think about the last the, the three previous signings at the club, they were they were Chris Hart, uh, Chris Kiwamia, John Hartson, and Glenn Helder, and the, you know John Hartson turned out to be a you know very good player, had a good career, but but when you jump from those three guys to Dennis Bergkamp, it's quite the leap, and it was definitely the precursor for. For what followed, because it just put Arsenal at sort of a different level. It proved that they could attract elite players in the, in their prime, and um, yeah, and I'm sure that Arsene Wenger, the prospect of working with Dennis, would, would have been part of the the allure of, of joining the Gunners. And in training, it, it was, I've said this before, but most days it was the Dennis Bergkamp Appreciation <laughs> Society mm-hmm. because. It, You've got guys like Wrighty and Merce and and excellent player Tony Adams. They're purring at some, at all the stuff that he's doing, all the goals that he's scoring, or the touches, or the bits of skill. They're like, ah, oh, stop it, Dennis, stop it. It's too much. Uh, you know, chipping chipping the keeper from ridiculous angles. It, he he was on a on a different stratosphere, and and it it, it was so frustrating at the outset that he wasn't able to translate that onto the pitch because for the first few months he struggled mm. a bit and people were hammering him and we knew he, he would come good but it, it, we sort of had to bite our tongues a little bit and, and, and I'm so glad it sort of turned out like it did because he was, how, it was brilliant. How did you find out about the signing? Was I can't remember. C-fax or something. Probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly had no inside inside track on it. Remarkable the story that Ian Wright found out about it because he stopped at a petrol station and saw Dennis Bergkamp. And he said, that's Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp said, that's Ian Wright. <laughs> and he asked him what he was doing. And apparently it was nowhere near Arsenal as well. It was just some random petrol station somewhere, South Mims perhaps. And uh, that's how he discovered that 
Bergkamp had just signed for the Arsenal and uh, Ian then got back into his car and started to beat the steering wheel shouting, it's Bergkamp, it's Bergkamp. <laughs> One, wonderful story. Mm. One of the many about... Uh, he famously had the top three goals in August 1997's Goal of the Month competition. Also remarkably, is the only Dutch player in the English Football Hall of Fame. Also remarkably, Arsenal have never won a Premier League title without a Dennis Bergkamp in their side. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. It's not just as Adrian says the the sort of level of, of skill that he that he had, but but to deliver in the moments that he did and to try the things that he that, that he pulled off were, were, were things that a lot of professional footballers probably wouldn't have wouldn't have dreamed of doing in the in the games. And, and one of the most iconic goals, speaking about you know those these international goals that sort of live long in the memory, was his last minute winner against Argentina in the World, in the World Cup quarter final. Whenever he he just took it down and, and pulled the defender away, and then just just expertly just guided the ball into the top corner and that 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 world cup i was i was very very young when that, when that world cup was on and it was just one of those goals that sort of stayed with me forever you know it, it's those those moments of it's almost like just of, of genius to, to pull that off at, at such a crucial time in the game and he did that quite a lot at arsenal as, as well of course and he's, he's one of those players that it, 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 it's almost like football has lost that a little bit because players are almost coached out of those moments of Sort of just inspiration. Frank de Boer spelt the ball. Heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Inside Arsenal at the time, the culture wasn't good. It, it wasn't good because George Graham had sort of things had got a bit toxic towards the end of the George Graham thing. The, the players were getting older and maybe weren't responding as well to his style of management. And he went under sort of you know, a cloud and then Stuart Houston took over and basically the players just took the piss, really, during Stuart Houston's caretaker tenure. They sort of just rolled with it. It was a it was a little bit like kids in the kids with the supply teacher attitude. And 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 things were really sort of falling away. And I was a young player coming through, and I probably I'm not saying I'm a victim of it, because I could have I could have just been above it and and stayed out extra for training etc and, and and I didn't but the culture there no one stayed out for extra training they couldn't wait to get off and go and you know have a, have a social and it was everything was was not as professional as it should have been and then when Burkamp came in when when the lads started to see him st- staying after training and working on that touch so he already had the best touch probably in the world at that time but but it didn't come through just naturalness it, he worked on it and he worked on his finishing and he worked on 1v1s after training and and you suddenly saw a few of the other lads joining in with that and it rubbed off and they were like yeah I'll do a bit with you Martin Keown would stay out and do 1v1s with Bergkamp and and it, it changed and then then I think that, that that dressing room was ready to embrace Arsene Wenger and that new that new generation when he came a year later. So on so many levels, Bergkamp's arrival um, was transformational for Arsenal. Yeah, I mean, and, and the, th- the crazy thing about that goal, Colin was talking about the um, the one for Argentina, is that he scored that one for Le- against Leicester for Arsenal at the start of that season. And you thought, wow, he'll never, you know, to do that once was unbelievable. And then he, uh, to score a similar type of goal to that goal, obviously the one against Newcastle as well is one that, 
you think of as one of the most inventive best goals in Premier League history. I mean, he really was. I mean, I think some of the things I think about him in that same game, actually, the Argentina one, his assist for Patrick Kluivert's goal mm. is this kind of cushioned header as he's falling back. It's and the weight of it is perfect. And and he talks about that in his book, which is satisfyingly kind of um, cerebral and in- intensely analytical about the way he played and his appreciation of space and all of these sort of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, he it's rare you can say it, but he was a, a one of a kind. Like the, the way he, there's a, the Freddie Jumberg assist against Juve as well, I would suggest looking up where he have holds off a few Juventus defenders, turns and then just flicks this pass. Um yeah, his his vision, his his spatial awareness, his way of pass was all just utterly extraordinary. Is there any Dennis Bergkamp in the Athletics' current Golden Games Premier League all-time best performances countdown? Do you know, Charlie? Ooh, none that have come so far, I don't We're think. We're on 44 would... at the moment, so there is ample room for it. Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd be roughly. very, I'd be very surprised um, if there were. I mean, the Leicester game, the, that the Leicester one's got to be right. It's got to be in the if, top ten. Yeah, isn't it? If, if that's not, then uh, I imagine, yeah, Dennis will be devastated. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, that, that really was. That was. I mean, yeah, the goals alone. Since since we last spoke, we've had Nar Quinn uh, for Sunderland against Chelsea, JJ Kocha, Bolton against Spurs. As this countdown continues, we're on 44, I think I mentioned today. Nick Miller writing this one. Oh, it's a special one. It's uh, Man United away at Nottingham Forest in 1999 when uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came on with 18 minutes to go and scored four goals as a substitute in what was an 8-1 victory for United. For many years, the biggest away victory in the Premier League's history until Leicester went to St Mary's in 20. 19. Charlie, you've got a couple on the way, haven't you? Which I imagine are embargoed, aren't they? They are, yeah. yeah. But do look out for them. Right. What what would be yours, Adrian and Colin, were you were you to be contributing? I I have three that, that stand out in my head. Well, one of them's sort of obviously Andre Arshavin's performance at Liverpool right. where he scored four goals and had that remarkable 4-4 draw. One of the other ones, and this is a performance that I'll never forget, was Harry Kane for Tottenham against Chelsea on New mm. Year's Day in 2015. And Tottenham won that match 5-3. I think Kane scored twice, but... It was the context of what happened because Chelsea had were running away with a league title. They weren't conceding any goals, and Kane just ripped apart John Terry and Gary Cahill. Like he was, he, it, the performance was incredible, and it was one of those games that stays with you because it was just up until that point. I think I was like a lot of people who maybe didn't watch Tottenham every week who thought, yeah, Harry Kane, he, he's, he's this young guy who's sort of he's getting quite a few goals, but he doesn't really. He doesn't really stand out as his obvious star. And then I saw this, I was like, that's completely wrong. Kane, lovely turn. Harry Kane, oh. that's gorgeous. How good is he? I mean, the other one um, that I had in my head, and again, this is probably less obvious, was Jimmy Vardy whenever Leicester um, beat Liverpool in the 2015-16 mm. season. And Vardy scored twice. One of them was a, this remarkable long-range strike. But it was just such an incredible performance and again it tore Liverpool apart but that came just days before Leicester went to win 3-1 at Man City and that was obviously the, the sort of runner results that propelled their, their ridiculous title so that it was that sort of that, that, that performance against Liverpool it wasn't just the fact that it was so extraordinary in itself but it sparked probably the most well definitely the most remarkable 
Premier League, um, Premier League narrative, I suppose, of of all time. It's just, just an incredible, an incredible run of run of games. Absolutely, a- Adrian, care to add anything to that? Yeah, t- two that came to mind. Um, one was against Arsenal. David de Gea in two thousand and seventeen. I think he made fourteen saves in the game. Uh, I looked back on it this morning. There's some absolute worldies in there, including one just ridiculous double save. It was just a one-man show, just a, a stunning individual performance. And um, yeah, it, at that point, there's no question that he was the best, the best on the planet. Um, but the one, the one that really stands out is Luis Suarez against Norwich. I think it was in which one? Two, well, yeah, it was 2013. <laughs> I'll tell you the one. Because there were four worldies, or three worldies and one very good goal. One 40-yard volley. And there was one inside the six-yard box where he sort of hooked it in yeah. cleverly. And then he half-volleyed. We flicked one up over a defender and half-volleyed it into the far corner, sort of two foot off the ground. It was absolutely drilled. Suarez. Obviously this time, Luis Suarez! He makes Liverpool history! And then... He- as if all that wasn't enough, he put a free kick into the top corner from 30 yards. I mean, in terms of four goal salvos, it was unbelievably special. And I do think that peak Luis Suarez for Liverpool was pretty close to Thierry Henry, who, who, who remains the greatest Premier League player, in my opinion. But when he was in that hot patch, he was just remarkable. Colin, where, where's Luis Suarez going to be next season? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. That uh, I, it, it's 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 interesting in the sense that there hasn't actually been a lot of talk about it. There's been like there's an acceptance that he's leaving Atletico Madrid, um, mm. but he he, he sort of had a, a, a strange campaign. Obviously, he fired into the, the title the year before that. He had that sort of revenge mission against um, against Barcelona for letting him go. And you, I, I kind of suspect he might have a similar idea in mind to sort of prove people wrong. Um, maybe in Spain, I, I kind of think somewhere like Sevilla might might be a good fit for him. But I haven't haven't actually heard that established yet. And maybe a return to the Premier League is another possibility. I don't think he's going to go to somewhere like um, MLS, especially, especially 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 with the World Cup coming up. I think he wants right. to be in the in the in the sort of the, the spotlight for at least another another year or two. All right. Well, that's no doubt a story that we can touch on in future editions of this show just to finish off today if you're after some actual football there's stuff in brazil going on charlie there's also england under 19 euros Uh, on wednesday england will be playing serbia having beaten austria 2-0 on sunday is this good value did you see that game i didn't see the whole game um i've seen the goals and alfie divine scoring Mm. a brilliant one Tottenham's Alfie Devine, who is a really exciting prospect. Him and Dane Scarlett are both representing England. But yeah, I would def- I mean, Devine's one to watch. Uh, people might remember him. He came on and scored for the Spurs first team against Marine in that FA Cup tie uh, in January last year. But he's, yeah, he's really well thought of. Really exciting, kind of number eight goal scorer. And yeah, there are a couple of pieces actually I've written on him as well, if people are more interested in, um, in potentially the future of, uh, well, one of the future stars for, for Spurs and maybe even England. Excellent. All right. Well, Wednesday, uh, they will be in action. He most likely will be featuring in the team as they take on Serbia in the under-19s in Slovakia. Very good. Anything else we should know before we wrap it up, Adrian and Colin? 
No, I don't think so. Right. <laughs> I think we're good to go. No, it's a, okay. I think we've done very well, considering there's no actual football taking place at a senior level at the moment. I think we've, yeah, that was a pretty good show. There you go. There you go, listener. <laughs> Do hope you'll be joining us again on Thursday. For now, it's many, many thanks to you, to producer Charlie, to Colin, to Adrian and Charlie Eccleshare. And from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.